the understanding the complexity and the diversity of the trust is essential in this job because no two properties are the same. You know, one morning I'm talking about trying to preserve bats and then the afternoon I'm talking about what we're selling in our shops and in the evening I'm on a fundraising event and, you know, I might be talking about environmental policy. So the diversity of the subjects we cover is huge, but that is exactly why I absolutely love it. Hi there, I'm James Ashton. This podcast invites leaders from across the spectrum to discuss how they learn to lead, the challenges they face every day, and the advice they offer to others. Today, we explore tough decisions in the genteel world of stately homes and the great outdoors, as the National Trust seeks to bounce back from the COVID-19 pandemic. Leading is supported by Lockton, the world's largest privately owned independent insurance broker. Lockton's independence means its 8,000 associates worldwide are free to focus solely on their clients' risk and insurance needs. To hear more from Lockton experts, please visit lockedoninternational.com slash GB slash insight. So to this episode, Hilary McGrady is Director General of the National Trust, keeper of the nation's treasures, including the Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland, Sir Winston Churchill's family home Chartwell in Kent, and Scarfell Pike in the Lake District. With 5.5 million members and more than 50,000 volunteers in normal times helping to keep sites open and maintained, everyone has a view of what the boss should be doing. We talk about her plan for recovering from COVID, which cost the trust a third of its revenues and resulted in 1,500 redundancies. Inspiring members to do their bit to combat climate change, the very personal reason she joined the organisation in 2005, and how early skills from marketing whiskey and clashing with politicians in Northern Ireland still come in handy today. It's a great episode, and I kicked off by asking Hilary how she balances the demands of running the UK's largest members' organisation. Yeah, so the first thing to say is that it's a massive privilege. Um, I know that sounds a bit twee, but genuinely, to find myself as Director General of an organisation that is so widely owned by the nation. It genuinely is. It's a bit like the BBC or the NHS. The The nation feels that it has a huge sense of ownership of the National Trust and that. So I do feel incredibly privileged to be leading it, but it does come with its clearly its challenges because everyone has a view on how I should be running the National Trust. Um, and I think the thing about this, I, I broadly really welcome that. It's incredibly important that the Trust tries to maintain a response to the whole of the nation. And and it is so easy to listen to who's shouting at you loudest. And it's so easy to be knocked off uh, course by those people um, on all sides, by the way, people who just have a very strong and passionate view on something. So, but it's it, so the biggest challenge as a leader of this organisation is to try to hold steady and a steady course you know, be absolutely true to the charitable purpose, keep that as your North Star, make sure that you're staying, that that purpose is staying relevant to the era that we're in and hold fast to that, listen to people as you go, but really try to stay focused on that central charitable purpose, which hasn't changed in 125 years and won't. And these are not typical times, but what in normal times might a typical day be? Because I, I think you're still based, uh, your family life, I think, is based in, in Northern Ireland, but then you have to be travelling quite a bit. I always ask people on this podcast, how do you keep in touch with the grassroots? One thing the National Trust has got is a lot of grass. 
Yeah, a lot of grass. Um, it's partly, I think, my background, to be honest. Because I came up, I was a regional director in Northern Ireland and Wales and then England. I know the organisation incredibly well. I, you know, we've over 300 properties and I've been to over 280 of them. I, I pride myself in really understanding what's happening on the ground. And I certainly, in a normal in a normal day, in a normal year, I would be at properties once or twice a week. And that's purely to meet people and that's our staff, our volunteers, our visitors, to keep my ear to the ground, to understand what people are thinking and feeling and, and try to absorb that myriad of views uh, and try to make sense of it. So, But understanding the complexity and the diversity of the trust is essential in this job because no two properties are the same. You know, one morning I'm talking about trying to preserve bats and in the afternoon I'm talking about what we're selling in our shops and in the evening I'm on a fundraising event and, you know, I might be talking about environmental policy. So, so the diversity of the subjects we cover is, is huge, but that is exactly why I absolutely love it. And to put some numbers around National Trust, you've alluded to the, the hundreds of houses and homes that you look after. There's 800 miles of coastline. There's 250,000 hectares of land. I think you're the country's biggest private landowner. That's right. 5.5 uh, yep. million members, 50,000 plus volunteers, 8,000 plus staff. So they're all there. They're all looking up to you, Hillary. <laughs> I don't know if they're looking up to me. I certainly, that's never what I think. To be honest, I, I, every day I get up and think, how can I lead this organisation better than I did yesterday, frankly? That's, that's always just what's in the front of my mind. How do I make sure that we are here for the next 125 years? Uh, all the way through COVID, that's what it's been about. Yeah, you said COVID and pandemic. We must come on to that because I'm interested in the mission now. There is what the mission might have been. You you gave a, a speech, I think it's a little over a year ago, before the pandemic struck. It was your anniversary year, 125 years of National Trust. It was very much about greening your portfolio, which is interesting thing, really, given how green people think of the National Trust anyway. But you wanted to plant trees, um, look at going carbon neutral by 2030 and so on, and then everything switched to to pandemic. So where are you now? What's top of the in-tray? So you're quite right. All the way through COVID, top of the in-tray was making sure that the organisation would survive COVID and ultimately be able to thrive at the end of it. And that has taken up my every waking hour. I think where I am right now, though, is actually we're coming back around that circle and we're now facing back into what was then, I think, absolutely the right things to be focusing on to make sure that as an organisation, we would reach our, you know, really quite ambitious targets of being carbon neutral by 2030. As part of that, that we'd be uh, planting 20 million trees. But I think what has changed in the last, what, now 15 months, it's actually, I suppose, made all of those ambitions ever more vivid. Um, covid and we'll come on to what impact that was on us operationally. What that has done, I think, in terms of the nation is to put more and more focus on access to green space, access to nature, why it's good for mental health, why it's good for community spirit, why it's good for nature. All of those things have come right up the list of things that are deemed to be essential, actually, for a good and healthy and balanced life. So the trust is ever more relevant than it, than it was at the start of this. But I think what I hadn't quite anticipated was just how important the whole element of community, people wanting to be part of something, feel rooted in each other's community and, and wanting to understand what part they play in, in the midst of this mad world. And I don't think it's any coincidence that you see, you know, there's been a huge increase in things like repair shop, pottery throwdown, all of these kind of activities that go to the heart of, I don't know, just simple 
pleasures that people have enjoyed and, and heritage and history has played into that as well. An interest in where people come from. I mean, there's been a huge explosion of people looking at their family uh, trees, et cetera, et cetera. And so while I fully expected the nature thing to come to the fore... We've had the time to do it, Hilary. We have had the time to do it, but I think it's awakened an interest. And, and I think, that, again, the Trust has a real role to play in that. So those two things have come to the fore for sure. And you say that it's, you know, you are conscious of the forefathers. I think when you were appointed, you talked about, you know, the baton that you now held from all these people, you know, going right back, Robert Hunter, Octavia Hill. And it was Octavia Hill who talked about open air sitting rooms, which I think is where you are now with trying to green urban spaces. You're planting blossom trees in in the Olympic Park in, in East London and other urban centres. But it has changed o- over time, hasn't it? It was about green spaces for urbanites in the early days and then when the death taxes went up you took on a lot of stately homes and then it feels more latterly well you talk about it with tree planting and so on it's been what can you do in relation to climate change is the climate change is that something of a, of a political agenda are you kind of telling people to do better or are you just wanting to do your bit and get your house in order so just to go back to what you said, you're quite right. The, the trust over its 125 years has absolutely adapted to what the nation has needed from it throughout those all of those times. And Octavia was incredibly passionate about exactly the same things as I am, making sure that people who do not have access to green space, who do not have access to beauty, you know, have that equal access. So equaling access to beauty, to nature, to history is incredibly important to me as it was to her. Things moved on, though. Industrialisation moved into the wars when actually, and, and post the war period, where our great houses were put under threat. And the nation did need this amazing asset that we have looked after. And so the, the trust stepped in. Coast came under a huge amount of pressure then in the 50s and 60s. And again, the, the trust sort of rose to another need. And I would say climate change is not a political agenda for us. I would say the nation, indeed the world needs all of us to play a part in climate change. And so primarily, I think the trust needs to play its part. That's what I'm most interested in. But I, I would also say through our actions and through our demonstration that we can inspire others to to want to do likewise. So first and foremost, it's get our own house in order. That's why we've got our carbon neutral target. It's also because we own land. We ha- A lot of people talk about doing all sorts of things from planting trees to uh, sequestering carbon. We actually have the land to do it. We're one of the few that can actually get out there and start to deliver like tomorrow. So I'm really keen that we accelerate the activity that we can put in this. But again, I think COVID has probably forced us rightly to think more creatively about how we do that in tandem with others and to get to the outcomes faster. So, you know, working with the other NGOs, but actually working with some other unlikely partners, you know, people in the private sector, people like the water companies, for example, who have very similar outcomes for different reasons. So what can we do to partner with those others to accelerate the kind of change that we need to see happen? Inspiring others is interesting. I mean, looking at some of these, um, every big company worth its salt now has that 10-year plan. They're going to Unilever-type plan of cutting water use and all these other sorts of things. And the most ambitious of them, I mean, Unilever, the one that they set out 10 years ago, they factored into their footprint, if you like, what their suppliers and what their consumers did. So I think the idea that Paul Polman had was he was going to influence people that bought shampoo to stand in the shower less every morning and, and save water. Now, that proved extremely difficult to do. Are you, if you like, counting what your members do as part of your footprint? How firmly are you telling them to improve their behaviour? 
Yeah, so I think this is a really is a really good challenge, and it's one that we're we're getting inc increasingly clear about. So, in terms of our carbon ambition to be uh, carbon neutral by twenty thirty, that doesn't include visitor travel. And of course, we wrestled with that back and forward and up and down. We're clear that we could do the things that we were directly in control of, and we would work to influence and support others to behave in a more carbon-friendly uh, way in the future. So we cannot say you mustn't ever drive to our houses or, or to our properties. I, I think that would be, A, we're preaching, and, and that's not what I think we should be about. And B, it's really not very practical. So I want to focus on the things that we have control of, and I know that we can really do, ambitious as they still are. Meanwhile really trying to encourage others to change their their habits so we want to work with um, sustainable transport providers for example are the work that we're doing on planning for example is trying to ensure that we build houses that are more carbon friendly we are trying to work with other organizations to change consumer habits and the stuff that we sell in our shops for example and our cafes etc will all play into that so when we're doing a double hander but i think we it's a very fine line between don't do as we do, but do as we say. I'm much more in the, we are going to do this stuff and we're going to inspire you, hopefully, to try to emulate what we're trying to achieve. Less butter in those cakes, Hilary, less methane produced. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, you know, we changed from plastic cups to paper cups. You know, we, all these little things do make a difference. And I'm not for one minute saying we get everything right. You know, every day we're trying to improve a bit. But if we can't, if a, if a conservation organisation like us can't be, you know, show some leadership in this stuff, then then who can? You know, so so big things that we've achieved, you know, we, we moved all of our 5.5 million membership cards from plastic to cardboard. We changed our magazines from having plastic covers to having vegetable-based covers. So all of these things make a difference, but we've loads more to do. And what I'll come on to the pandemic because there's, there's very difficult decisions you've made over the last year and a bit there, and also there's questions over the finances and how you you revive those. But some of those things that you are going to do, I mean, I pick out say planting trees, for example. I know you've got the land. A lot of people are planting trees. Why not leave that to someone? You know, it makes Shell feel a lot better about themselves if they could, if they can go out and plant trees, or they could plant them on, on your land, and then I don't know, you could use that money, that resource in a different way. Well. I mean, to be honest, even if we plant all our 20 million trees and everybody else plants theirs, we'll still not have enough of them. So I think the combination of the fact that we do have the land, we do have the wherewithal and we do have the partnerships, I, I think it's entirely valid for a conservation organisation to focus on this. What I would say is that we're not just planting trees because of carbon. We are very clear that it needs to be the right tree in the right place and that it needs to have a three-way benefit of carbon, nature and people. And that's why we're getting a mix. You know, that's... Um, I'm so delighted with how, you know, enthusiastic the nation has been about our Blossom campaign because I don't think when people think about planting trees for carbon, they're thinking about big forests, where in fact, every tree makes a difference. And actually, you can combine beauty with nature, with carbon. And so, again, the diversity of how the Trust can touch different people on different agendas, I think, is our strength. Um, so I, I would argue that it we shouldn't hand that job over to other people. What we should do is work with other people to get this, these things to happen. I'm interested to go back to some of those decisions you took around pandemic. Just to sum up, I think your finances, about in normal times, as of last year, you had about 700 million of income, roughly half of that from members and donors, and half ish of that from commercial activities it's everything from the, the car parks to the catering to um to rental and, and and so on and overall you lost a third of that i think overnight 
and then you took that decision to um, the redundancies for 1,500 of your staff. So I'm just interested in, in how the boss makes that decision because there are a lot of different levers that can be pulled in an organisation of your scale, but you had to reduce the headcount. Yeah, we we did. And, you know, like just about every other organisation, we all went through that moment where we felt we are on a cliff edge. This was pre-furlough coming in, of course, and everybody, I looked at our reserves just like any other organisation and said, well, this isn't going to last us that long. Like all good charities, we had sufficient reserves to keep ourselves going in times of difficulty for, I think at, at that time, it was about four to five months. Our wage bill was 25 million a month alone, forgetting about all the other overheads. So that we went on record saying we estimated we would lose over 200 million in revenue last year. What people didn't fully understand and, and was the thing that triggered us into really having to think about reducing our cost base was that we absolutely anticipated losing members. And as you've rightly said, accounts for about 50% of our income, slightly more actually if you take membership income as it were. But if you add our members are the people that also buy the scones and buy the, the trinkets. So you add that together and the impact of not having members or, or losing members and then not having them visit was going to have a much longer impact than just the COVID period, however long that was going to be. At that stage, we thought it was going to be three months, and then it went to six, nine, 12, and so on. So we knew that we had to address what the long-term impact of losing members would be. I should say, we always lose members. <laughs> That's just part of the cycle. We always lose members, but we always, certainly for the last decade, have been able to recruit more members than we've lost. Our loss of members has remained exactly the same. The rate of losing them has remained exactly the same despite what the papers would tell you. What we haven't been able to do is recruit because we haven't been open and we haven't, you know, people haven't had an, the incentive to, to join. Some of our wonderful people who love us because of the cause have joined us. But by and large, the people that we've lost are the people who are going, well, I don't have anywhere, I can't go, I can't use my membership, so I'll, I'll let it lapse. And you've lost about 400,000, you know, I think. Over, just over, at, actually. And you were on an absolute clip you've really been piling on i remember when i interviewed your predecessor i think it took the national trust 85 years to sign up the first million and then the fifth million you did in six years the pandemic really brought you to a juddering halt didn't it it did it did we were one week off having six million members i mean that's that's one of the most disappointing things of all of this uh, and yeah and we're down to five and a half so it was a, it was a long-term implication you can't just flick a switch and get those members to all reappear again so that is why we had to make the decision to go into the redundancy program which was of massive regret for me believe me and again the papers would suggest that we had some some scheme up our sleeves we didn't i didn't want to lose a single member of staff but it is my responsibility to make sure that we are financially sustainable. And at that dark moment, we had no idea how long this was going to last. We had no idea where our membership slide would stop. And it was a responsible thing to do to make sure that we would size our organisation to our income. So with huge regret, that's that's what we had to do. I'm conscious of this because I'm, I'm from that world, but you've mentioned the papers a couple of times, Hilary. I mean, have you had a bad press during this time or is this just part and parcel of the scrutiny that the Trust has had over decades? Yeah, yeah, it's very part and parcel of what we do. It frustrates me because it's it's so binary. So much of what they cover is so binary and they pick one statement and, and make hay with it. That I think that's why I'm raising those two things. You know, people assume many things out of headlines uh, and it's frustrating because it's largely wrong but 
but it is part and parcel of what it means to be the DG of the National Trust. It's been like this for the last decade. You know, there's been successive stories that that seem to just add and snowball as they go. It's not surprising. We have 5.5 million members. People are interested. We sell papers. So I, I live with that. It's That's part and parcel of my job. Tell me how it comes back. When does the National Trust get back to normal, in inverted commas? When would you like it to? So we actually have been working on getting to normal really from day one. Like everybody else, we went through crisis mode. You know, everybody focused on the re- what we called it, the reset program. But our aim from very early on, we give ourselves what we called a handrail off. We're at crisis here. We're going to move into recovery and then we get to new normal. You know, that dial has shifted based on conditions. So we initially, a bit like the government, we started off with dates and then realised actually it's much more about the conditions need to be right to move to the next phase. I think we have been heading towards normal really since Christmas, even with that lockdown, because we were able to open our gardens and our parks. Yes, we've had the booking system, but people getting back into the rhythm of coming back to to our properties, enjoying the beautiful spaces, all of those things. We've been moving in that direction. The big key, I think, for us will be the 17th of May. It's a funny old thing because I think it's, I can't remember the number now, but it's something like only 30% of our visitors actually will go into our houses. But our houses are the heart of our properties very often. So the sense of them being open enables the sense of the National Trust being open. So for me, the 17th of May is going to be a big moment for us that that will really feel as if we're getting back to what I consider to be normal world. I was actually at Cliveden last week and I was very tempted to feel that this is normal. It was really busy, beautiful day. The gardens were like amazing. The cafe was open, albeit only for takeaway, but still there was a sense of people just being out and buzzy. And I thought, oh, yes, yes, I can see this is starting to feel like the trust I remember. So it was a good moment. And th- there has been some coverage that say it's it's difficult with some of your s- smaller properties. I mean, will everything come back? I mean, I, I wonder if some of the decisions are financial, actually, if, if there are there are ways of reshaping your vast portfolio as you look to to the future. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of things we we'll possibly come on to. There are lots of things that we have learned through COVID, um, you know, like nearly every business, you know, we've learned how to work from our living rooms. That's actually driven loads of efficiencies. It's, it's flattened our organisation. There's loads of things out of it. One of the things we have discovered, less so on the big properties, because again, I'm sort of, I'm generalising here, but broadly speaking, 80% of our visitors go to 20% of our properties. So the 80% of small properties that are out there that get low visiting numbers just because of where they are, because they're small or whatever, whatever. Actually, what we really thought about during COVID was how do we make the experience at those ones better at a better, you know, from a cost efficiency perspective at a a better rate. And we will continue with the booking system for those small places, but genuinely with the intention of instead of having one poor member of staff stood all day to see five visitors, you'll book and you'll go and you'll have an in-depth experience and you'll get a really good guided tour of that place and really get you know exposure to the whole story. And we're really hopeful that a booking system for those little properties will end up with a better experience and a better use of charitable funds uh, in order to display them. But there is no question in my mind that we want to get all of our properties open. There's a teeny amount, I think three or four, that are in the middle of conservation work or whatever at the moment, but absolute intention that all of our properties will will be open and accessible to the public for sure. That's why we exist. Why, why would I want to do anything different? Has this year made you a better boss? 
Jeepers, it's been a really hard year. Has it made me a better boss? I think it's really, what it has done is made me really focus on the things that really, really matter. What, as I've said, one of the joys of the trust is there's just so many things that we could do, so many areas that we could play in. And what this has done is really focused me in on the things that really, really matter. And that's got to be good, I think. Prioritisation is always that sort of holy grail that any leader, I, I guess, goes for. And this has forced me to do that. So in that sense, yes, better. I, I think what it has done is really tapped me into and reminded me again and again and again why I love the organisation and why I'm passionate about what it does. This episode of Leading is supported by Lockton. We'll get back to the conversation shortly, but first here's Chris Brown, Lockton's managing partner, on the risks associated with leading out of a pandemic. The pandemic, without question, has caused a change in operating models and has sped up existing trends and created new risks for industries. And being in the uh, business of risk, it's really important for clients to look at how they can be alert to future risks and be flexible in their approach and make sure that they're really updating their risk register to reflect not just the risks that there are now, but also the risks in the future, some of which will be unique and new following the pandemic. I want to ask you about the, the the properties specifically, but also the people on the properties. Again, seeing as I've got all, all the numbers out, uh, and do correct me on these as well. I think simply opening the national trust every year costs three hundred million pounds. Almost to get out of bed, it seems to cost that amount of money, which is not a small amount. And then I think in the last normal year, you spent something like one hundred and seventy million pounds on restoration, conservation, etc. And I think that's gone up over the last five years or so. And there's always this mythical backlog I've seen in the annual report before. I guess you could just spend and spend and spend. You have to decide at what level you want these properties. So I suppose the question is, the finances are under pressure. You hope they bounce back. What are the decisions you make? I mean, are are there some of these properties that you could look to sell? I know that means an act of parliament. Or are you making really tough decisions about which crumbling brickwork and which coastal erosion you can address next? So we'll not be selling. <laughs> the only properties that we would ever sell are the ones that have been given to us for the purpose of selling. So no, we hold the, um, our responsibility of availability incredibly seriously. So we'll not be selling. I'm fully confident that, well, <laughs> my, my CFO might shout at me, but I'm feeling very confident that because of the really tough decisions we did make around reducing our cost base, that we are in a now in a position where we can start to rebuild and get back to growth. So yes, we're not we're we're on the edge of the woods. I wouldn't say we're out of the woods because no one really knows will you know will there be more restrictions in October or whatever. But we have built enough resilience in to carry us forward. So I'm fully intending to be able to get back into growing as an organisation and start to rebuild that spend on conservation. It's going to take two or three years, though. I think we have to accept that. But equally, remember the trust is here forever. So to some degree, we don't have to rush at these things. But I think you make a really important point around what is our approach to conservation overall? Do all properties get exactly the same treatment? Do we start to differentiate a little bit? And I think that is something that is really, really interesting. And and COVID has definitely given us cause for thought around that. So being really clear about our what we're calling our treasure houses, so the properties that really are significant and that their collections are incredibly important, they should rightly get more attention. So we've put in additional curator support, for example, into those houses. So there's 28 of them, I think. So they're getting dedicated curatorial support that they didn't have before. 
for precisely that reason. We think we need to give them extra support. Those properties that are perhaps less significant, but maybe have a great social story to tell, or maybe they don't have any collection, but they're amazing spaces. We are looking at how do we make sure that there's a baseline of conservation and care everywhere, of course, but can we think of new ways to make sure that we are putting the right level of resource to the right places? So that is a shift that COVID has driven us to think harder about that. But I guess there is a baseline, as I've said, all properties need to be carried to a certain standard. And we have a term called in need in the organisation. So what is the minimum need any property has to make sure that it's you know, secure, safe, watertight, all of those things. That's the baseline. And then you build from there. And this has been a good process to make us really think a bit harder about that. And also, what does it mean to say that you're going to look after something forever? Is that realistic? You know, are there places that just, you know, you, you can't save forever? You know, what is the long term? But that's something we'll need to think about in tandem with people like Historic England and uh, and other regulatory bodies, you know. So, but these are big, long term strategic issues that we'll continue to grapple with. But right now, this differentiation between those properties that are really significant, those that have, a, you know, a different story to tell, how do we treat them in uh, in a different way and make them more interesting, actually? Because one of the criticisms we've had over the years is that there's a sort of an identikit National Trust kind of thing. And I think I'm actually really passionate about making our houses, in particular our houses, more engaging. I want more people to come into them to see something different each time they come back. That could be, you know, that we've rearranged the, the paintings. It could be that we've done a specific piece of conservation, but something that keeps them feeling interesting and a reason to return. I think that's a really challenging one for us as we go forward, but I, I'm convinced we've got you know loads of opportunity there. So despite the, the emergency, there has been time to reflect, I suppose there must have been, if, if there's been less operational stuff, if there's been less stuff open. Just to expand on that point about um, should we look after what forever means? So you're, there is no sense that there's going to be any less of the National Trust, but are you trying to share the burden, get um, get English Heritage on the phone, see if they've got a, a few quid? Um, well, we, we have been incredibly lucky actually to be able to draw down on the various culture recovery funds and so on. I'm, I'm very grateful because some of that conservation work that we just couldn't afford this year has been able to keep going like Oxborough and Wellington Tower and so on. Yeah, so just expand on that. I was really just thinking long, long term. The National Trust is here forever. So for some people, they'll come at this saying, well, it's your job to look after this thing forever. So you can it, it can never fall down. It can never decay. Some of our collection, how could you make sure that a castle never, ever decays? You know, it's just impossible to suggest that you can keep it standing forever and ever and ever. So, so those are the things that I think we're interested in grappling with. Where is the greatest public benefit? When you have got a finite set of resource, where is the greatest public benefit being delivered? And it, so it's those questions that we're just asking ourselves. But the, in the here and now, I want everywhere open. I want as many people to enjoy them as possible. I want us to stay really vibrant and really relevant. And those are the things that are interesting to me underpinned with two pillars for us at the moment, which is climate change and making sure that we are as welcoming to everybody as we possibly can be. And so so those two things underpin all of our work um, as we go forward. And you mentioned, did we get time during COVID? When we set out on our programme of redundancy, we, we didn't, we could have easily just said 20% off everybody. We didn't, we set out a renewal plan, which said, where do we need to focus our resource? 
absolutely ring fence our charitable purpose, make sure that the organisation is, uh, the pr properties are safe, make sure that we've got the resources to keep the business going. It was in those sort of priorities. And that then shaped where we ended up making the cuts, oh, painful as that was. It wasn't equal everywhere. Tell me, from the properties, move on to the, the people. And, you know, you're one of those great British organisations that, that would not open every day without the volunteer network. Clearly, they, they come to the, the local sites that they've grown up around and, um, you know, they're very passionate about, about what they do. I think you're getting by with fewer than you used to, as I track the numbers from when I interviewed Helen. So there's a bit more than, than 50,000. And I remember when Helen, I interviewed Helen, she said, actually, there is a challenge with getting older people to volunteer because they're all off on cruises or, uh, well, if only, you know, they're the baby boomers now, they're less likely to want to stand at the gate handing out leaflets and, and so on. So tell me about them and how you relate to them, because I think there's something fascinating about the public sector. You're leading these people, but they only show up because they love it. So it has to be quite light touch leadership, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, first thing to say is I absolutely adore our volunteers. <laughs> they provide such a lifeblood to our properties, genuinely. Um, it, it's likely that you, the first person you meet when you come to one of our places will be a volunteer. So it's incredibly important to me that they turn up feeling engaged and, and happy to be there. Yeah, how important. Helen's probably right. Our numbers, in all honesty, it's jolly hard to actually count how many volunteers you have because some of them come every day, every week, and some of them come three times a year type of thing. We are pretty confident now that we've got a really good, strong cohort, somewhere between 45 and 50,000, or certainly that was just before COVID. I, to some degree, I would agree with her. It's less to do with people's age and more to do with how lifestyle has changed. You know, people are living longer, they're healthier for longer, they're retiring earlier, the many, many other things they, they want to do from looking after the grandchildren to, as you say, going on cruises. So, what I see is a lifestyle change that is applying to just about all age groups. But while we may have some of those older people who have other things to do, we're equally seeing younger people coming in who are more interested in volunteering than they ever were before. And COVID again has accelerated that. And so I, while they're not all back yet, we're really quite surprised at just how many have wanted to come back so quickly. And, and I met some of them last week and they're to a man and woman saying, just so great to be back, a sense of community, sense of doing something useful. And above all, they actually, it's less to them about the National Trust and much more about the place. You know, inevitably they volunteer locally because they love that place. Uh, and I love that. I, I, I think that, that that's one of my highlights when I visit a property, when I hear those stories from volunteers. I do think it presents a, quite a challenge for us that we have to be up for, which is they want more flexibility. They don't necessarily want to stand in the same room, you know, every time they turn up and stand for a full day. They want to be able to dip and dive. And we need to be offering a wider variety of things to volunteer in. And that should be up and down the organisation, you know, from sitting on leadership teams through to helping clear the course. But fundamentally for me, volunteering is a two-way relationship and a two-way benefit. Yes, they do amazing work for us and that's fabulous. Equally, we deliver something for our volunteers and it's part of our purpose in delivering our benefit, uh, as I see it. And, and that's incredibly important to me. So doing that in, in a more flexible, more open, more transparent way, I think is, is really important. Yeah. Where would we find you putting in the volunteer shifts, Hilary? Do you turn up at different venues and, and just do a shift as a volunteer just to um, you know, see how it's all operating? 
I love volunteering. It inevitably drives my staff up the walls because they're always terrified when I turn up. But I love volunteering and I like both interior and exterior, you know. So my, you know, I did a, a big litter pick recently at one of the beaches after a delightful bunch of kids had a rave. And equally, I'm, I'm very happy to help, you know, one of our carpets. We had a, a leak uh, in one of our rooms and we had to squeegee a carpet recently. So I'm really happy to do any of those things. And that's where you actually do hear from the volunteers what's on their minds. Um, sometimes they're happy and definitely they hold us to account, which again, I, I value hugely. Yeah, that's that's pretty unfiltered when you're, when you're litter picking. That That's the moment when yeah. you really do pick up what they're thinking about. Look, briefly, um, you've highlighted colonial past and the slave links of some of the properties within the trust. I don't want to go into that point in great depth. You seem to spend much of your time talking about that at the moment. I'm just interested in where you go with that now. I know you have one of your stated aims that is, I want more diverse staff, more diverse volunteers, more diverse visitors. Are the two things connected or how do you achieve the latter? Um, They are connected, but actually... I mean, I think the connection was overinflated during this whole period. But but let me be really clear. The original reason for researching our properties was in the mix of all of the stories we want to tell about our places. We research all the time. You know, we've we've done specific pieces of work around all sorts of things from, you know, what were the connections to our houses during the Second World War when they were very often uh, used as hospitals? What was the connection with between our properties and uh, women's suffrage? What was the connection with um, our properties and LBGTQ during the anniversary of the year of decriminalisation? So on an ongoing rolling basis, we will research all sorts of issues that are of public interest at any time. As it happened, <laughs> we had chosen to research this particular area because it is very clearly an, an area of um, increased public interest. And I really feel strongly that the Trust needs to fill in all of the gaps, the bits of the stories that we haven't told before. So it's not, it's no political agenda. It's no sort of drive for any particular thing to be more important than something else. It's filling in the gaps. And we haven't fill those gaps in. And we'll keep doing that. And there'll be other things that will come out. I don't know what there will be in the future. But, you know, 50 years ago, it was deemed to be quite radical to tell the below the stairs story. You know, it was deemed to be slightly socialist to actually tell the story of the, the servants. But that's the thing. The Trust has always just continuously tried to add and embellish the stories that they've been telling. And that's all we were trying to do. But to be really clear, I come from a place, I, I personally come from a place where the National Trust, as I grew up, probably wasn't an organisation that felt like for someone like me. And so I have a sort of a personal interest in making sure that it is an organisation that is genuinely democratic, that is genuinely open to everybody and anybody that wants to engage with it. Not on my terms, on their terms. And so I am very, very passionate about making sure that we are as accessible as we can be. And I use accessible in the broadest sense, physically accessible, financially accessible, you know, emotionally accessible, all of that. And that is a that is a personal ambition of mine. Now the two things have got conflated, and you could argue that you know, in order for me to feel that this is an organisation for me, I want to be able to see the stories that are relevant to me. That's part of it, but that was not the motivation necessarily out of that particular piece of work. I am really keen to find ways that we, as an organisation, are more representative of the communities we serve. But let's be clear. You know, someone was saying, "Well, you need to have sixteen percent of your staff from ethnic backgrounds." Well. If you just take Northern Ireland, 
the percentage of people from minority backgrounds is 0.2% or something like that. So we have to be really nuanced around what we mean by that. But it is important to me that our properties feel representative of the of the communities in which they operate. And that's an ambition that's really, that is quite deep felt. And as an employer, fundamentally as an employer, I think we have to welcome diversity of thought, diversity of age, diversity of background, diversity of gender, all of those things makes us a better organization if we if we welcome diversity in it in all of its guises and that's what i'm interested in really trying to push and it's jolly difficult it's really difficult but i'm determined to by the time i leave to have made a difference in in that area because we've tried for a long time helen tried before me and fiona's tried before her and and we haven't made a big dent in that but i'm i'm determined to do something about it this time how do you do it differently well in a practical sense we're putting some structural things in, you know, so we're really looking at our recruitment practices. We're really looking at making sure that our own behaviours are not creating barriers, that we've got really clear leadership behaviour in place and, you know, really explicit about that. One of our values we've identified is being everyone welcome. And what does that mean to live in a, on a daily basis? You know, what use of language, all of those structural things that can make a workplace feel either welcoming or unwelcoming. So there's that. There's also just being genuinely celebratory about diversity. So really identifying where we've made successes actually and why it's a really good thing to be open to more diverse ways of thinking and so on and so forth. So we've got a whole programme. It's called our Everyone Welcome programme. And it's in common, funny, this morning, literally, we ran a mini conference with Superdrug because they're doing a very similar programme. So we're comparing you know, what they're up to with what we're up to. So to structurally change things, but equally celebrate what we have achieved, which is which is actually quite a lot already. We've got networks for people with disabilities, networks for race and equity and for LBGTQ. I'd like to think we'll have more networks going forward. So we're making progress, but it, it's slow. I'm looking back over your very colourful CV. When would you regard yourself as to first have been in charge of something? So my first big grown-up job was working uh, for what was called Gilby's then but was Guinness and then Diageo and I was in a marketing role ended up being marketing manager at that point. I then moved to become director of a little tiny arts organisation called Arts and Business and there was only six people I think in the team and I was the Northern Ireland director for that organisation and it was my first chance to be in charge. It was tiny but I absolutely loved it um, because I it was I was in charge of my own little outfit and I could set my own objectives, I could set my own business plan and I could lead a team and that was the moment that I thought I, I really enjoyed that leadership moment and it didn't matter about the scale of it, the fact that I could make a difference and that difference could be down to me and my actions was transformative for me in terms of my career. Yeah, that was the first moment. An arts and business does what it says on the tin. It's UK wide, and as you say, you ran Northern Ireland. It's 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 the interface of of the arts and business. How can these two sides help each other? I suppose it's interesting to me that you had had this private sector start to your career, and uh, I read the cuttings. You did wonderful things with the the sales of Jack Daniels in your region, and then you chose to go. There's the private to public switch. Was that very different? Did you need different skills? Yeah, I did. It was a very conscious shift. I had a moment, slight epiphany actually. <laughs> I was put in charge of what was called in those days Alcopops. It was the development of Alcopops, you probably don't remember them, but it was basically finding a, a way to get kids to, into alcohol. 
and, and there could be no other way to describe it. It was sweetening alcohol to a point that kids thought it was like lemonade. And I have to admit, I felt really uncomfortable with that. It just didn't, I, maybe I, I just had my first child. For all sorts of reasons, it just felt entirely wrong from a value base. And because I don't, I've had a long held love of art in every shape and form and a, and a strong belief, particularly from a Northern Ireland context, that culture in Northern Ireland was something that everybody should feel is a shared thing, not, not a divided thing. So this combination and this job to come up that I could get back into the arts world, use the business skills that I had learnt. And I have to say Diageo were amazing for giving me great grounding on just core business skills, selling skills and so on. And this seemed like the, this job had my name on it because, you know, I, using my business skills and the connections that I'd made in that job and bringing me back to the thing that I really loved. So it was a kind of a marriage really made in heaven. And to some degree, that's why I think the trust equally felt such a perfect fit for me because people forget, as you rightly said, we had a turnover of 700 million last <laughs> in 19 or 2019. We're a big business that needs to be managed carefully in that context as well as fundamentally a, ch a conservation charity so those two things I've ridden those two horses all the way through my career and and I I'm rather proud of that actually so you've been you joined National Trust in 2006 and as you say it felt like a natural progression I suppose there's quite a personal element as well which you've talked about before the trust made itself much more relevant to you in your community it acquired i think it's pronounced divis mountain yeah. which the army used as the surveillance post uh, over over west belfast during the the troubles and then you joined i think that inspired you to join please correct me if not and then it moved did. up through the organization over over 12 years to become director general yeah no that's exactly it it's actually 2005 i joined august 2005 imprinted in my head um yes all, all of the above is correct. It wasn't an organisation I necessarily... I had, it, I had been introduced to it just like virtually every other Protestant child being taken to Mount Stewart way back when I was at 13. But up to that, I hadn't really engaged with the Trust. So the acquisition of Divis was, was a huge statement for the Trust to make at the time. Massive. And very close to my heart because it was very close to where I lived. And, and I just... And again, this sort of sense of right time, right place and a job that just seemed to fit fit with what I uh, I was interested in. Equally, I don't think it probably is in the notes, but Northern Ireland as a region, as part of the National Trust at, the, at that time, ran a, a roughly, I can't remember now, but it was something like a three million pound deficit every year. So as a region, it was a drain on the National Trust. So it was one of those, I love it. I love a challenge. I love a target. <laughs> That's amazing. E even with the Giants Causeway, which must be, yeah. I think, your most popular attraction. That is not. And, um, okay. Right. Someone came in and fixed it, did they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly, genuinely, it, genuinely, it seems so obvious to me. We had, a, you know, as I say, three million pound deficit. It was a really important thing to me that Northern Ireland should be able to stand on its own two feet. It was very obvious that we had two opportunities, Giants Causeway being one, Mount Stewart being the other. And I said about trying to make Giants Causeway an engine for the region to be able to stand on its own two feet and to make sure that we could conserve all of the other properties in this country. So that was hugely satisfying. Hugely, sat I would still say that the Giants Causeway Visitor Centre is one of the things I'm probably most proud of. What did you have to do there? You looked at it and you said, look, well, we need a, a good building. We need, goodness me, let's get a bigger cafe. I mean, it's it's all those sorts of things, isn't it? <laughs> if only it had been that easy. Um, <laughs> it was a complete dog's dinner at the time because we owned the stones, obviously. We didn't 
owned the, the bit that the visitor centre was built on. The local authority owned that and we were in a hideous row with them every day. There was a massive row going on with Ian Paisley Jr. at the time and a local developer who wanted to develop a visitor centre somewhere else. So it was a complete political storm, actually. It wasn't, if it only had been, the visitor centre was kind of the little bit that came at the end. Sorting out the mess that was Giants Causeway and the relationships up there was, I, I mean, I was talking about press coverage. You talk about that. I was in the front cover of the Telegraph for nearly two weeks solid. And I think you mean the Belfast Telegraph. Yes. Oh, yeah. There only is one telegraph. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, the Belfast Telegraph. Um, and the, and it became quite a public spat between myself and then Arlene Foster, who was the Minister for Department of Economy at the time. But that's but that's that is quite that's quite formative, isn't it? Oh, hugely. You know, you've gone. Not, not, you know, a few years before that, you've got six people in a, in an office, I guess, in Belfast on arts and business, and then you know you are really making big changes in Northern Ireland and getting noticed and going into battle. Yeah, no, uh, and I loved it. I mean, in between times, I did the Capital of Culture. That was only, it was a secondment, but talking about formative, that was probably the biggest shift because I went from arts and business into doing that job for a year, but that really was into the firing line with the political agenda over here, which I hadn't really had a lot of exposure to at the time, but that was hugely political. And this was bidding for, this was, uh, you were seconded from arts and business to lead the bid for Belfast to become City of Culture 2008. Yeah, I came in very late. Actually, the whole thing had been running for quite a long time. The chief executive at the time left suddenly and they had to get the bid in. Six months to get the bid finished. So the, so the, that's why I was seconded. But it was incredibly formative from my point of view to be working with politicians, to be working with the public sector, to figure out how you deal with funding from the public sector. So in terms of giving me the tools to be able to go on into the National Trust then, that actually that year was incredibly useful to me. Well, now you say it that way, Hillary. I mean, Northern Irish politics to to national trust. Well, you 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 know you're you're ready for it. You you can take anything on now. <laughs> I think if you've grappled with Northern Ireland politics, it does hold you in good stead, um, because there's so many there's so many perspectives that you have to listen to. I suppose that has what that yeah you. The thing about this country is you've got to listen to everybody because you've got to take a 360 view. You have got to take a 360 view because no one is right in this country. No one is right. You have to find a way to balance all of that and find a way through. And communicate. Yeah. Tell me about mentorship. Who has helped you on the way? I've had lots of mentors. I'm not I'm not someone that sort of gets a mentor and sticks to one person. I, I find that I, I like to talk to different people about different subjects. So I mentioned working in Gilby's, there was the chief executive there was a man called Trevor McClintock, who was so old style and completely directive in his style. But he taught me a huge amount about just being confident, taking decisions, taking risks, you know, going with your gut to some degree. Yes, look at the data, look at the analysis, but you know, there's an instinctive sense of where to go. He was he was brilliant and I still stay in touch with him actually. He's brilliant. I will go to actually we've got some amazing trustees that I would use as mentors. Uh, Sandy Nairn is a really good example. Michael Day, both from a curatorial side, really great on on mentoring. Tim Parker, my chairman, is clearly really good on a business perspective. And then over the years I've just had people who also keep me seeing. <laughs> you know, calm down. You don't need to worry about that. This is the thing to put your focus on. So it's, yeah. So, uh, but I don't choose one person. No. And with Tim, of course, who I've interviewed a few times, a very keen uh, flute player. He is. And I wonder with you on the drums, whether you're halfway to to the National Trust (laughs) Band there. (laughs) 
I don't, Tim would have a heart attack at the very prospect of that. He was incredibly, <laughs> when he listened to my Desert Islanders, he went, hmm, wouldn't be my choice of music. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, he's he's very talented on the flute, actually. Yeah. And the and I suppose one of the final things I would ask is, very interesting to me, so you, you join in August 2005, as you say, and then you've worked up. I mean, there has been a time when the National Trust, it was, it's been run by conservationists, by outsiders, government appointments. It's been a, a wonderful bauble on peace, people's CV at the end of their career. Not you, though, because you've worked your way up. Does that give you advantages? Does it give you more credibility with, with all these people? I, I mean, I like to, I like to think it does. I, I like to think that my staff and my volunteers truly believe that I understand their world and that I'm that I'm working in their interests. This is not about me. This is about them, and it's about the organisation. So I, th- I think it does give you certain credibility about that, and it also does give you the ability to kind of know the questions that you need to ask because there are not very many stones that I haven't been under in the trust. Yeah, I, I really do feel I understand the issues really well on the downside you have to work that bit harder than externally don't you um because there's something about making sure that because this is an organization that is internal and external you're trying to influence all of the time so those two things i again i need to to ride both horses all of the time so you know one comes with a strength and but you have to be mindful of the other things you need to think about so and what advice do you offer to the next Hillary McGrady, the people who are coming up, whether it's through um, Marketing Gordon's Gin or the National Trust, or what, what would you have liked to have known a, a few years back? Oh, good point. What would I like to have known? I, I Look, I can only talk from my own personal experience. I am someone who is driven by goals and, and I want to move with pace. And I think the lesson I have learned, and I remember it was a, a man called Martin Drury, who was also a director general three ago I remember him saying so clearly because I was getting really frustrated with the project at Mount Stewart and I wanted things to happen and he said long runs the fox my dear I remember it as clear as a day and that is actually what I would say to anybody coming after me you know it may take a bit longer to get to the right decision but the trust is here forever and you've got the time so stay focused on the right decision rather than trying you know trying to push it all of all the time so that would be it long runs the fox Great. That's a great conversation. Thanks very much, Hilary. Oh, you're very welcome. It was really good. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you've heard. For more leaders who enjoy the great outdoors like Hilary, you can also dive into the Leading Archive to hear Kate Maver from English Heritage, Becky Spate from the RSPB, and Richard Parry from the Canal and River Trust. This episode was supported by Lockton, a global independent insurance broker whose people have the freedom to think and act in the best interests of their clients. For more details, go to lockedinternational.com slash gb slash insight. And of course, check out leadingpod.com. More episodes coming soon. <laughs>